In 2013, a group of people who were interested in queer history met at the home of the late Stuart Butler. Stuart, who was 83 at the time, showed them dozens of boxes of papers he had collected and saved throughout his 35-year career as an LGBT plus activist. Stuart then asked the group what was going to happen to his archives when something happened to him. The result was the creation of the LGBT Plus Archives Project of Louisiana. The Archives Project chronicles the cultural and historical materials of the LGBT Plus community in Louisiana. The mission of the project is to preserve, protect, promote, and encourage the preservation of these materials and make them available for future generations to access for research and study. Quiet Conversations is proud to have the LGBT Plus Archives Project of Louisiana as a part of this podcast. If you'd like to contribute, please visit them at lgbtarchives.org forward slash donate forward slash. That's lgbtarchives.org forward slash donate forward slash. Acknowledging and celebrating our differences is essential in hearing another person's views as it can help you approach conversations with a willingness to learn. Keep in mind that your peers may also have different reasons motivating their viewpoints and actions. My name is Arthur Severio and welcome to Quiet Conversations. Hi everyone, this is Arthur. Please note that this episode contains depictions of violence and homophobia that some people may find disturbing. Me and my best friend had taken a Greyhound bus to New Orleans because the year before, I ran away to New Orleans. I was 17. But I didn't get into the whole gay culture. I was more into the hippie culture and wanting to travel. I hitchhiked from New Orleans to California and back and didn't return to New Orleans until the next year. Well, honey, I encouraged my friends. You have, we have got to go to New Orleans because I was ready. I was ready to embrace you know, my life and whatever. We got a room in an old hotel right across from the Jack's Beer Factory. Cheap, run-down hotel. <laughs> we was told. So, um, anyway, we found our way to Pete's and to Caverns where the parade and all that is. The drinking age was 18 back then. And you could, you didn't have to have a gun cup. You could just walk out with your glass. Different times. But everything was so free, and you know, it was new, and it was life. It was, it was amazing. But then, it was fire, and we saw the smoke first. And didn't think much about it, didn't go towards it, because we were young. Nobody, you know, we were into our own trip. But then eventually, it started, the gossip started. You know, there's been a fire at a gay bar, and... You know, this is not work kids, we're green, we're right off the truck, you know, we're from Ohio. So we would make our way up there. And it's something I still, it's hard for me to, to grasp. I saw that man in the window. Pardon? You yes, we did. We, we did, we did. But it was so horrific and so heartbreaking. There's not been a, a day I don't think that I haven't thought about that. It was heartbreaking. Well, we didn't stay there long because it was just, it was just too, too much. 
especially seeing uh, somebody like that, you know, who had been burnt, and it was just too much. On that Sunday night of June 24th, Phyllis Steve and his lover were enjoying a night out with another couple, attending a production at the Beverly Dinner Theater, when the maitre d' interrupted their meal to tell them that Phil had a phone call. From the book, Let the Faggots Burn, the door buzzer kept ringing. The bar was extremely busy, and Buddy Rasmussen, the bartender, became irritated, hollered at Luther Boggs, who in the hell keeps ringing that doorbell? Johnny Townsend said it was like someone was trying to warn them, or maybe it was just a short in the wire. From the documentary Upstairs Inferno, Luther swung open the door, and it was like a firebomb that shot straight up the stairs. Ricky Everett remembered, I could see the glow of the flames, and all of a sudden, the curtains that were hanging in the stairwell shot straight across the ceiling and lifted the carpet right off the stairs. He said the flames were all around him, and it was pandemonium instantly when the fire came into the bar. The bar went from people celebrating to those same people screaming in pain. Ricky said that the only thing that saved him was God performed a miracle. He felt the weight of a blanket that God placed over him, and he knew the direction of the fire escape, and as the flames engulfed the bar, he walked towards it. Once he got outside, his adrenaline led him up the stairs of the fire escape to the roof where there was a complete stranger who was waiting for him. The man pointed him to an open window of an apartment. And once he was inside, he walked through the front door that took him safely downstairs to the street. Buddy Rasmussen, who had been trained in the fire division of the Air Force, grabbed the keys to the fire door and screamed for people to follow him. He led 23 people down the fire escape. Mitch Mitchell followed Buddy outside of the fire escape, but went back inside to save his lover. According to all accounts, Mitch Mitchell was a very loving, gentle soul who had recently fallen in love with a man named Horace Broussard, a barber from Baton Rouge. Mitch was very dedicated to Horace, his two young sons, and his new position as an associate pastor at the MCC Church. The church had recently moved from the back room at the upstairs to their new uptown location on Magazine Street. Mitch, like most people who had recently fallen in love, had to be reassured by Horace that he loved him in the same way as Mitch loved him. The two acted like two small school children in love. Some of the people were able to jump through the bars that were placed on the windows that kept people from falling out, injuring themselves. Francis Dufresne miraculously fit through the bars of the middle window and jumped to the ground where people blocked his fall. He said the next thing he remembered was waking up in the hospital. Some who escaped through the bars suffered injuries on their faces and bodies from being burnt by the heat of the metal bars. Michael Scarborough said that he felt his lover, Glenn Green, push him through the bars. Michael said that he smelt like cooking oil, that he had been roasting alive. When Michael looked up, Glenn didn't make it out. Everyone was trying to get through the fire escape door. It was taking too long when Luther Boggs pushed his best friend, Jean Gosnell, through the window, breaking a couple of her teeth. Once they made it outside, Luther, in an adrenaline rush, was literally on fire. He screamed at Jean to help him. After putting the flames out, Jean became severely burned as well. Luther jumped from the fire escape down to the street, while Jean ran up the fire escape to the coolness of the roof 
to wait for the fire department to rescue her. One guy ran back into the bar and into the bathroom, which was right next to the fire escape, to save his friend. The fire department said that they found two bodies in the bathroom and another in front of the fire escape door. So that's how fast the fire escape cut off. It said that the street went from people screaming to complete silence. When Buddy Rasmussen got down to the street, he looked up to see 17 of his friends roasting alive, screaming and struggling to escape through the bars on the windows. Buddy said that the last memory that he has of his lover, Adam Fontenot, was Adam being knocked off his bar stool by the water from a fire hose. Buddy said the last memory of his lover, Adam Fontenot, was Adam being knocked off of his bar stool by the water from a fire hose. June 24th is Adam Fontenot's birthday. Adam is laid to rest in a cemetery in Ville Platte, Louisiana. Ricky Everett was consumed by the memory of seeing his friends burning up. As soon as he would fall asleep, he was plagued by nightmares. Ricky's mama, who was very religious, provided a refuge for him. When she asked him if he was gay, he told her he was. He said that after this, she loved him even more. Ricky worked at Schwagman's grocery store and had to return the week after the fire to keep his job. His co-workers recognized his voice from a television interview where his identity was concealed, treated him with dignity and respect when he returned. Courtney Craig barely remembered talking to Tom's Picayune reporter, Angus Lynn, that night on Iberville Street. Got a phone call from back home. A news article with his name made it all the way to Arkansas, where his devout Methodist parents lived. His dad, a banker, and his mama, a school teacher, wanted him to explain how they were going to face everyone. Instead of being supportive and glad he was still alive, they told him it was a betrayal to them. And even worse, Courtney suffered the shame of not only having to come out to his parents, but everyone who knew him. Courtney was left a broken man after this. His parents had no compassion or empathy for him surviving a tragedy in one of his darkest times. Bill Larson, the pastor of the MCC church that started in the back room of the upstairs lounge, tried to squeeze through one of the windows, but an air-conditioned unit fell, pinning Bill. People on the street heard him scream, Oh God, no, as flames consumed him. Bill Larson's burned, mannequin, frozen-like body was left in the window for four hours. It was like Jesus hanging on the cross. Bill Larson's legacy is being left trapped in that window for public spectacle. And the photos of him in the place where he first led services for the New Orleans chapter of the MCC Church. In an article by Kim Chandler on the APNews.com website, Smith Station, Alabama, after the 2019 suicide of a local teenager, small-town mayor and pastor F.L. Bubba Copeland helped students place roadside signs in his Alabama community to try to reach others who might be hurting. You are worthy of love. Don't give up. You matter. Those were the same messages that friends said they tried to get through to Copeland before he took his own life along one of those country roads two days after a conservative news site exposed social media posts where he appeared in women's clothing, a wig, and makeup. Here's a conversation I had with Larry DiCiaria. 
This call is being recorded. I really liked what you said on Facebook. You want to talk a little bit about your relationship with this man and what happened and what transpired? Sure. My relationship is basically a professional relationship. I was superintendent of schools in a neighboring school district from where Bubba lived. He was also on the school board of another school district nearby. We did a lot of school meetings and we ran into each other in grocery stores. And every time we did, we stopped and talked business. We chatted about the football team, that type of a, of a relationship. I was superintendent there for 10 years. So I've known him probably 20 years now. He later got off the school board and was going to run for the mayor of Smith Station. I think he served maybe 10 or 11 years on the school board. As mayor, I think he's won a couple of terms. When all this stuff started coming out online, I was as surprised as anybody. You know, as I read more and more, and the attacks were coming at him pretty furiously, because people were critical of everything from the fact that he was a minister to the mayor. People had their opinions as to what he was doing, whether it was appropriate or not, or whether it violated the law or not. It just turned into a frenzy where more and more people jumped in and gave their opinions, and some were very nasty, some of them were very sarcastic, some were very derogatory toward him and his family. And that compelled me to reach out to him just to check on him, just to say, hey, I know it's tough, hang in there. As a school superintendent, and I also ran for Congress, eight or nine years ago, I know what it's like to be in the public eye, and I know what it's like to be unfairly criticized. And I also know that I was a victim of of people doing the same thing online, kind of in a bullying way. And so uh, I just knew he had to be hurting. So I just reached out, told him to keep his head up. He's a good person. He's a good man, good heart. It'll pass. He just told me he appreciated it and that it's been some very dark days. 24 hours later, he killed himself. He was just a regular guy. Oh, my he did, gosh. It, he did what he did, know, it, but he kept it private. So, so what you're saying. I, I don't know anybody that didn't like Bubba Copeland. He's a big old teddy bear, a big round guy with a big smile, and he loved to hug people, and he brought a lot of joy in a lot of people's lives. Always had a smile and a kind word for people. I never went to his church, but I heard he was a very good pastor. He led Smith Station through a very tough time when the tornadoes came through and destroyed a lot of buildings and killed some people. And he was there. He had to kind of lead the emergency response from every indication that I've heard. He did a great job during that period of time. The reason I was compelled to speak out, besides the fact that, you know, as a superintendent, I would get calls from parents all the time about their child being bullied on the school bus or being bullied in the school. And they expected me to try to do something about it. Well, some of those very same parents are the ones that were bullying Bubba Copeland online and thought it was okay, I guess, because they're adults, but it's not okay. And I felt it was important, you know, to speak out for that reason. The other reason is if if I wanted to have a discussion about Bubba and his lifestyle, and I wanted to have it with my wife in the privacy of my home, that's one level, but it takes it to a whole nother level when this discussion takes place publicly and everybody jumps on the bandwagon 
and it goes from a level one or two to a level 10 real fast, that's when the hurt really takes place to people. And I knew that it was hurting him. I had no idea that it would lead to his suicide, but I just hope people will learn from this experience and maybe in the future, you know, maybe change their behavior. Thank you. That's that's my thing. I don't want to sensationalize this at all. I just want to say that this guy was a guy and what he did in the privacy of his own home. Sure, we all have judgments. You know, everybody does and everybody has opinions. But it's like you're you. I mean, you nailed it on the head. Cyberbullying is the worst. It is. And I don't know the salacious details. You know, there's people out there that gave their opinion. They they threw out a lot of things that he was on an erotica site, that he posted these stories that he wrote that were fantasies of murdering a lady and taking her identity and, you know, supposedly posting a picture of of a couple of minors. Nothing that I'm aware of did he break the law. I have not heard anything that he in any way exploited children. If it's true that he posted the picture, that maybe somebody would consider that as exploiting the child. I, I don't know. I, I I did not dig into the details, and I don't think any of the other people commenting um, know any better than I know what happened. You know what, Larry? I'm going to honor him, and until guilty, I'm just you. Know, was that guilty until proven in? I mean, innocent until proven guilty, or the other way around? Actually, guilty until yeah. proven. I'm not absolutely. Putting, I'm not putting it, that on there because if they can't no. prove, I'm not going to draw attention to. No, that's exactly right. And that was my point that I tried to make yeah. to some folks that what gives you the right to be the judge, jury, and the executioner? You had in your mind that this guy must be evil, so therefore um, I must do my duty and try to stop this guy or destroy this guy. And the only thing Bubba ever admitted to was that he liked to dress in women's clothing and wear makeup. His <laughs> wife participated with him, that his huh? wife was okay with it, and that he did it to relieve stress. It brought him happiness when he did it. And 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 if that's the case, then is that worth being, you know, dying over? And the answer is no. And yeah. um and there are people, even after I did my Facebook post, out of twelve hundred responses Probably 1,150 were very positive responses about the post or about Bubba. The other 50, there are some people out there who I consider just sorry pieces of shit that felt compelled to, even in his death, revel in it, laugh about it, say things like they're glad it happened, as though they don't care who it hurt. They don't care if his wife is going to read these posts or his children or oh, his God. mother. I tried to delete as many of those people as I could just to say, hey, if you want to do that on your own post, that's fine, but you're not going to do it on here. Are you not satisfied that one man's already died? Do you want his child to die? Do you want his wife to? Do you want his mother? You know, what do you want? But I was very proud of the 1,100 and something people that paid paid tribute to Bubba and agreed with, with what I posted. Well, I'm proud of you for standing up for Bubba. Well, I appreciate that. I really that's do what, it. 
That's what we're all supposed to do. That's what people of integrity do. That's what I'm hoping the message is to people out there. You know, my wife sometimes gets on to me and says, why are you going to bring people to come down on you now? If we don't speak out, who's going to? I hope I'm teaching that to my three boys. It doesn't matter what you think privately. It doesn't matter what your opinions are. At the end of the day, I'm just looking at this was a case of cyberbullying, and it wasn't right. And now somebody's dead because of it. Bill Larson had a difficult relationship with his mother from early on. Even though she had the funds to take care of them, she placed him and his siblings in a home for boys. From the records, Bill showed signs of being gay at an early age. But he also displayed a flair for singing and composing on the piano, writing original plays and exhibiting a passion for the Bible. And he wanted to do some kind of religious work as an adult. Marrying and then divorcing, Bill then moved to Chicago and reinvented himself as a nightclub singer and entertainer named Ross Larison. His mama cut all ties with him after his divorce, and her disapproval of her youngest child only deepened Ross Larison's final transformation into becoming Bill Larson, the gay pastor of the New Orleans chapter of the MCC. After the photos of Bill's corpse in that window with his watch frozen at a few minutes after 8 o'clock went nationwide and Bill Larson was identified as being a homosexual and the pastor of a homosexual church. His mother was so horrified that she refused to claim his body or take it home for burial. Saying she denied him in life, why should she claim him in death? His mother released what was left of his body to the Metropolitan Community Church. The urn with his ashes were placed in the altar at the new location on Magazine Street. People literally prayed over him every time there was a church service. Bill Larson's final resting place is in a vault that was donated by a member of the MCC at the St. Rock Cemetery. He worked terribly, terribly hard for this church and built it to keep it alive in the face of many obstacles. One eulogist at his funeral said, It was oftentimes with poverty facing the church, he supported the church out of his own pocket. Bill Larson was one of our true, great LGBT heroes. May you rest in peace. Just as we are, though tossed about with many a conflict and most many a doubts, fightings, and fears from within, but most from without, O Lamb. Of God we come, we come. This episode is dedicated to Bill Larson, Bubba, and all the others. Quiet Conversations is written and researched by me and produced with the best of the information that I have found at the time of this broadcast. 
The speaker's views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of myself, this podcast, or anyone else. The material information presented here is for entertainment purposes only. The Quiet Conversations podcast name and all forms and abbreviations are the property of me, Arthur Severio, and its use does not imply endorsement of or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, comment, and follow on Apple Podcasts. My name is Arthur Severio, and I thank you for joining us. If they ask you what day it is, tell them it's your day. If they ask you how it's going, tell them it's going your way. If they ask you what time it is, tell them it's your time. And no matter how dark it gets, go on and shine. Go on and shine. No matter how dark it gets, go on and shine. Just remember, don't forget, life is too short. Yeah.